HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Comté Cheese Association. Comté, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at comté-usa.com. That's c-o-m-t-e-usa.com. And welcome to Cutting the Curd. I'm your host, Kara Warren. And today on the show, we have Eli Cairo. He is the founder and chief operating officer of Olympia Provisions located in Portland, Oregon. And they are an American charcuterie that had started in 2009 and is the first USDA-approved salumeria in the U.S. So a lot of awesomeness right there. Eli, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. There's just one correction in that. I'm not the first in the U.S., but I'm the first in Oregon. Oh, okay, okay. (laughs) You know, I I thought I might be overstating it, but I was like, we'll see what happens. Um, I should have let you run with it. It makes me sound way cool. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's cool altogether. Um, So the reason I have you on the show today is uh, there has been some debating in the cheese world and the cheese gossip channels about uh, charcuterie as a term and uh, how it's used at cheese counters. So I just wanted to ask you very plainly, what does the term charcuterie mean to you and how do you define it? Yeah, uh, for me, a charcuterie maker, if you take all of the romance out of it and all of the fancy words, is a value-added meat maker. So that could run the gauntlet from making hot dogs to pâtés to salami. If you're doing anything in the world that extends the life of raw meat, you're essentially doing some form of charcuterie or value-added meat making. Um, I guess it's similar to in cheese making. I don't know. Do you guys consider uh, people that make butter, sour cream, Philadelphia feet, you know, Philadelphia cheese, cream cheese, Mm -hmm. those things, are those all cheese makers? You know, see, that is a very fine question because it is part of a creamery. (laughs) So I do. That's a great question. So I do consider them cheese makers to an extent because it is it is before it is kind of before it's again it's fermented it's cultured milk right yeah exactly so you're right that is oh good yeah, it's question like, it's a good one. so like <laughs> if you add value to it to extend the shelf life 
of that product, you're, I don't know if the cheese maker is it, but in, in the meat world, I've always considered a charcuterie maker that. So to strip it down, like people don't think of it this way, but a roast beef is charcuterie, right? You're adding salt to pull moisture to it. You're roasting it to pull moisture out of it. You're extending it. It'll last longer than, you know, a raw roast would. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent answer. And and I guess so if somebody's at a cheese counter and they uh-huh. say, I want a charcuterie board. See, in my mind, that means you want a few different um, different salamis or cuts of, uh, you know, meat products and then maybe some olives and pickles and a mustard. Like, I don't know. That's what I think it is. Is that also is that what you consider a charcuterie board or is it something different? <laughs> well, that's a loaded question right now, huh? Isn't it's, it? like, <laughs> it's like uh For me, yeah, if you say a charcuterie board in the essence of it, you are getting a meat platter, right? A value-added meat platter, (laughs) taking the terms (laughs) out. However, in reality, a charcuterie board now is, uh, you know, charcuterie could play a very small role in these beautiful boards that cheeses are putting together and vegetables, and and they're bridging that gap. And I'm not going to be the one that says which one is right or wrong. Fair fair game. I I don't want to throw you into the fire. This is only the first 10 minutes of the program. So. I mean, yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. And I'm a, I, if, it, if, if it makes people happy to be eating their food on a board and they want to call it a charcuterie board, make yourself happy, goddammit. I'll play that card. <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough. Exactly. Don't, don't get too loaded about it. I, I get it. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about your background and how Olympia Provisions got started? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so uh, my background is I was fortunate enough when I was 17 years old to do a European apprenticeship in the Swiss Alps in a small valley called the Tokenberg or the Obertokenberg. It's um, pretty, it's getting a little bit more known in the cheese world. It's a valley, one ridge to the south of Appenzeller, which you all know pretty well. And Hollerhocker is kind of the claim to fame in the lower Tokenberg region. And I was up in the Alps above there. And I did a an apprenticeship in a hotel that uh, did a lot of wild game processing. So we had a fine dining restaurant, but we also processed, you know, 200 wild animals a month so we would get ibex elk deer marmots rabbits you know so on and so forth and we would process these some of it curing it or adding value to it and some of it in the fresh cuts for the restaurant uh supposed to be there for a year fortunate enough i did a full five-year apprenticeship at that point i was planning on living in graubunden which is in switzerland as well and curing beef and my sister called me when she moved to portland oregon and said, I got to come check this place out. In my recollection, America wasn't the artisan world that it is now. You know, I, I, I left from Salt Lake City and I was picturing, you know, a lot of Denny's, a lot of fast food, a lot of, you know, big box stores. And she's like, Portland and Oregon is a little different place. We have a wine region. We have amazing cheeses, so on and so forth. I flew in, went to the farmer's market, walked around. I asked somebody for um, salami. I was like, oh, we should get some salami. I would love to see what the salami like here tastes like. And everybody's like, nobody makes salami here. And, <laughs> you know, just like that, I was like, Michelle, I need to move back home. Mind you, this is also at the time that Rogue Rogue Blue Rogue, Rogue Blue Cheese, Rogue mm-hmm. River, yeah, uh, Rogue they, Creamery, yeah, yeah exactly. thank you, Rogue Creamery is there name um they had a booth there right and i tasted this amazingly funky beautiful blue cheese and then all of the amazing wine and beer we had here nobody was making delicious salami so i was like "Ooh, it seems pretty ripe to be 
here in Portland is an amazing place. So I packed my stuff and moved back. 2009, after three years of trying real hard, I opened up a USDA facility, um, one-man employee, first one in the wow. history of the state to be able to ferment salami and ship it with a not, you know, heat treating it whatsoever and drying it with air. And wow. yeah, that's the starting. <laughs> the rest oh is kind of history. Yeah, I mean, so that was that hard to get it uh, set up with the USDA um, for the USDA. Yeah, it was it was it was a challenge at the time. You know, learning the CFRs and the federal regulations—that's like learning a whole other language. And uh, <laughs> you just, I just had to go piece by piece and get down and understand what the HACCPs were, what the food science was, what I did want to make how I was going to go about it. And, you know, I started really, really small with the fear that I would fail. Didn't want to take too much money in debt and slowly but surely. So I started, the first thing I did was reach out to them. And then I had, had to get another job. I was running a kitchen, an executive chef of a restaurant called Castagna here. But on the weekends and the nights, I was only working with the USDA trying to get this going. And that whole process start to finish took me three years. Wow. Okay, yeah, so little, you learned little, a lot. Yeah, <laughs> you had to learn a lot then. Still how are. Did, how, yeah, I, I guess it's still evolving. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you choose the recipes that you wanted to start with for that process? Mm. So I am a, I'm like a, obsessed with ancient traditions. You know, like I, I, I like nothing gets me more excited than to find like an ancient charcuterie recipe, like a. I don't know, give me a give me a salami nola from a small village in the middle of nowhere, Italy, and that's the stuff that just makes me so happy. Well, when I first gonna, came back, go ahead. Oh, sorry, I was gonna give you a shout out on your Greek heritage because I know the Lukanika. Yeah. Did I say that right? Correctly? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah Lukanika, Lukanika. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I had never seen that before so that's what you when you're Uh, like hey give me one that's that's definitely one i've never seen before so uh but anyway exactly yeah yeah exactly like so i came back right and i came back from living in europe and traveling so much and being able to like you know go to different small regions and i was finding all these amazing european salamis that weren't necessarily italian and when you first came back to america there was pretty much italian salami you get finocchio and a cacciatore soppressatas and i instantly was like whoa what am i going to do for the rest of my life without saucy son sec or saucy son de aro and so i just wanted to kind of look at this market and be like there's such a huge space to kind of just move out of this mold of just italian salamis and so then i i, I uh, you know Really wanted to show that there was other types of beautiful dry cured salamis. And then for the rest of my product line, they're all based off of just super old recipes and ideas. You know, somebody may come to me that they had something or I may have had something in France or in Italy or at some point, And then I just try to replicate them the best I possibly can. I don't have an original thought in me. <laughs> no, no, no. But I, it sounds like you keep, again, evolving and improving these recipes uh, like exactly. for the classic Frankfurter. <laughs> exactly exactly I, that <laughs> i can't i mean i'm gonna sound crazy but i think you guys are making one of the best hot dogs in the market it has yeah. the snap it's delicious and i'm i'm a nathan's girl all the awesome. way 
So this is crazy. You've converted me. (laughs) Well, first off, super flattering. Thank you. But you know, that's also in the core and ethics that I like bring to what we do. If you know, if if you can make it more traditional and you kind of take away all of the modern improvements to it, if you go back to before you were adding phosphates to it and using liquid smoke and using dried powders, you're going to make a better product. And the Frankfurter is a prime example, right? A hot dog is like the sign of the American meat revolution. We were processing it so hard, so fast, that they just made it fast and quick. And if you take mm-hmm. all that out and go back to how you originally make it, you make a delicious sausage. The Frankfurter is like one of the greatest products I make. Real I, smoke, I hope real casing, real garlic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's it too. You have garlic in it and it's it's just very tasty. So I hope every store picks this up because I'm constantly looking to buy it. Um, yeah. But that is that is a love for me <laughs> anyway. Um, but I, so now I want to segue to um, the nitrate question, because I feel like every cheesemonger has this question at their counter. You know, mm-hmm. do you have salami without nitrates? Yeah. Uh, or, you know, it's sort of like, do you have sulfite? Do you have sulfite free wine? What do you, what do you suggest yeah. to um, the common cheesemonger? about the nitrate question. How do they handle that? What? That's a great question. You know, uh, it's, it's a hard, quick answer for me to tell people. I can say one thing, that it is simply impossible to make salami raw and natural without the use of nitrates. I mean, uh, nitrate plays an amazing role in curing meat, namely because it preserves the color, right? Everybody looks at it, gives it that amazing red color. It doesn't oxidize and turn brown. But that, that's one benefit. Also the flavor, it gives it that deep, what everybody calls umami, that amazing cured flavor in salami. But more so, more importantly, is that it addresses a very dangerous pathogen called botulism. Without nitrate, you cannot, and keeping it raw, if you cook, you can outcook uh, botulism. But if you're keeping it, if you're just fermenting it and dry curing it, you cannot address botulism without nitrate. You know, so much so that botulism in German is called the Wurstverkrankung, sausage sickness. It Mm. is very, very (laughs) lethal. And so if you remove that from the curing of salami, you have to cook it to kill botulism. So I guess in a weird way, I would say what's more unhealthy, and there's a lot of debate about what this is and is not healthy, dying from botulism or an unfounded way of, uh, you know, potentially somehow getting cancer. But I don't think that that's also not in fact. And again, nitrates and nitrites are found so common in many other products and ingredients. Your body produces tons of it. It's high as it is in spinach and bok choy and even in carrots. Nitrate is a very natural thing that has been demonized for whatever reason in America. Yeah, yeah. I think it it falls under a very interesting zone at the cheese counter, along with the pregnancy question. So uh, I'm glad you could help us clear this one up a little bit. Um, Yeah, I could go on for the rest of this time if you wanted me to go on a rant about (laughs) nitrates and the origins and the necessity and the... So yeah, well, so it's, it's important. It has to it do, is. I mean, it's salt related too, I, from what I think I understand about it. Is that wrong or right? You can it's, tell it's, me. What is it? It's what It has related? to do with salt, with the salt that you use as well in yeah, exactly. the, when you're curing. So, yeah, the original origins of nitrate and when it was, is when we went way back in the day and we were using salts to preserve meat like we currently do, they were using certain sea salts from areas that had a higher natural nitrate count in them from an impurity standpoint. Nitrate naturally is found often in foggy coastal waters, right? So in a big 
place that's doing um, sun-dried sea salts, when the fog rolls in, that carries a particle of nitrate. This gets onto the salt and that gets connected into it originally, right? And so you still see mm -hmm. these impurities, impurities in quotation marks, because it's such an amazing thing. When you added this to the, the meat, it naturally turned pink, it preserved the color, um, and it also was a preferred salt. They were selling more product, it had more flavor, so on and so forth. Um, and that's how it initially became what we consider a nitrated salt is we were using these natural salts that happen to have a particle of, you know, KNO in it or NO3 as the term is inside of this salt. Mm. And now of course it's, it's, it's gone a little bit further. Initially we would mine it in the South Americas as I think the largest producer of nitrated salt, you know, um, and now most of it is made in a lab or if it is considered clean nitrate or nitrate free products, what we do is we take spinach or chard or beets and we puree that because they have a natural uh, high amount of nitrate in it and we puree it and put it into our salami so we don't have to put nitrate on the labels but it still contains mm. at its base and oh if you know what i mean it is the same yeah. buildup as the mine stuff as the science one is the same exact thing just the way we get it is different i see and because you're all natural yours is sea salt in your products uh, mine's um, sea salt and uh chard Okay. So we we get our nitrate through chart. Very cool. Very cool. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna bring it back. We're gonna leave science a little bit. Yes. Sorta. I'm gonna <laughs> ask you about is white mold okay on the salami? Because um, right. you know people see that and they maybe they cut it off. Maybe they pick it off. I mean, is that yeah. edible? Is the paper edible on your salamis? You know, this is like all part the of casings. it, right? Yeah. Yeah. The exactly. casing. Excuse me. Yeah. 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 Yeah, no, so, oh boy, how much time do we have on this podcast? Oh uh, no, oh no. <laughs> no, you know, mold is a, mold in salami making is as important as is salt to me, right? Uh, that was the biggest thing. I came back to America, I looked inside of these salami cases and charcuterie or cheese cases, and I'm seeing synthetic casings, so fake casings, and all these salamis were covered in this fake white stuff on the outside that was not mold. And I had to do a little bit of research to what this is, and I found out that the vast majority of salamis in America are covered in milk powder or rice flour to give them the look of mold. And I'm like, wait, what in the hell are you talking about? They're just giving, you know, total smoke and mirrors trying to say that this is mold, but it's nothing to do with mold. And where right. I learned to make salami and charcuterie mold is how you make a delicious product. I mean, as you know, a lot of the cheesemongers will test this, like the greatest, most storied cheeses, take a Manchego, for example, or any of those, they have this an amazing mold on the outside that helps them preserve it, gives it that amazing flavor. So I, on my salami, ship them across the nation with live active molds on the outside in natural casings, because to me, I find that the most important, one of the most important flavors in salami. So, mm. yes, and they don't not necessarily need to be white, as is in cheese. You know, the, the mulch is a live, living, beautiful thing that could vary through fat content, moisture, humidity, coldness, and it's a live, active ingredient. <laughs> it's called the house flora in a salami house is what we always call it. And some are more sought after than others. And you go to these ancient shops and you see some that have crazy yellows and beautiful reds and they add, you know, amazing layer of flavor. That was a, a thing when I started in 2009, I didn't know of anybody that actually had live active molds on the outside. We had a lot of rice flour and milk powder and a lot of synthetic fake casings. And the goal we took was trying to convince people to eat, you know, mold on their salami. 
And thank you, all you amazing cheesemongers and cheese professionals out there for paving the way with that, telling people is that it's okay to eat mold, not only on your uh, cheeses, but also on your salami. Totally, totally true. And, and you mentioned house flora, which I was mm -hmm. going to ask you about. Mm -hmm. Now, that is... That's the ambient mold. Is that what is house flora exactly? Yeah. You know, house flora is it's it's a term we always talk about in Switzerland. I'm sure you've heard of it in the cheese world too. You definitely hear about it throughout wine. It's essentially a way like in your microclimate between your mold and everything that you create a terroir, right? Something that is distinctively this producer. If you're doing a live living product that evolves throughout the year, you are developing certain nuances and flavors that define your product, like it or not. I mean, if you're really, really obsessed with salamis and <laughs> like I am or prosciuttos or cheeses to some extent, you start to develop these amazing flavors that are built there. More so in salami when you talk about house flora is your molds. Um, I can remember going back to one of the shops I did my apprenticeship in and they have a lot of crazy molds in their drying cave. And I walked in and they had these big, beautiful red strands running through, beautiful, kind of horrifying, right? Arbacel. And I was like, what are these? And they were like, we don't know. We haven't seen it for over a century, but we're going to let it live out. And I was like, oh my God. And they're like, yeah, that's we have awesome. a crazy house flora here. And yeah, <laughs> it's that's... just, it's a living product in that. It doesn't need to be this, you know, repetitive same exact thing sure we have an uphill battle to taste this but as soon as we're to fight this but as soon as people start tasting and enjoying these amazing nuances and understanding that it is an additive flavor it makes it much more enjoyable than just eating a mundane milk powdered colored product oh my goodness no, well no, no, I didn't mean to disparage all those other meat makers out there making that product because, of course, I love those salamis as well. It's sure, just a sure. different product that I make. I make a, a, you know, a little bit different of a product. <laughs> Actually, we're, let's reconnect on that in a moment. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, everyone, you're listening to Cutting the Curd with Eli Cairo of Olympia Provisions, and I'm Kara Warren, and we will be right back. of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Conte Cheese Association. Conte Cheese Association represents the Conte PDO, Conte Protected Designation of Origin in the USA. Conte is a raw milk cooked pressed cheese from the Jura Mountains of France. There, every day, 2,500 family farms deliver milk to over 150 local cheesemaking facilities, or fruitiers. This milk must be transformed into Conté within 24 hours of milking to preserve the lactic microflora in the milk, ensuring the cheese's aromatic potential. About 105 gallons of milk are required to craft a single wheel of Conté. Conté takes time to acquire its flavors in the affinage cellars. After eight months of aging by dedicated affineurs on average, each wheel of Conté is graded and shipped to market. No wheel of Conté is the same. Its flavors speak to the pastures where the cows grazed, the season in which it was made, the particular craftsmanship of the cheesemaker, and the time spent in the aging cellar. Therefore, every wheel of Conte is unique. Learn more about Conte, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at Conte-USA.com. That's C-O-M-T-E hyphen USA dot com. 
Okay, everyone, welcome back to Cutting the Curd. I am here with Eli Cairo of Olympia Provisions. I am your host, Kara Warren. And we were just getting into uh, the fun fact of what uh, sets Olympia Provisions apart from other American charcuterie makers. Um, I think you were about to just trash talk them, I think, mm, is what you I were wouldn't. about to do. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. It's too sm- if you think the cheese community is small, imagine being a salami maker. There's very few of us, and I love all my friends in this industry. <laughs> that's that's fair. You can be Switzerland still. That's okay. Yeah, yeah I will be. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I guess um, uh, besides being um, – I guess, all natural and and doing everything Mm -hmm. the best way possible. I also Mm kind of wanted to bring up uh, marketing a little bit because I always find that interesting, especially food products. Mm -hmm. Um, How important is that to you and how did you get to the label you have today? Oh, fantastic question. Well, you know, it's funny. I've always looked at it as such a fun part of the process, if you know what I mean. I, I really enjoy that creative part of putting together a, uh, a label that kind of speaks for us and like makes you feel special or classic or whatever it is. Um, and in Portland in 2009, when we were creating, we did, there was a group of creative people that were starting their small marketing company and we got together and traded hot dogs and ideas and we came up with this amazing um, label. OMFG Co is the, is the name and they did a ton of work with Stump Town and Ace Hotel and so on and so forth. And we happened to be one of the uh, original group of people in that group. And it, you know, it, I, I think that's it, marketing plays a role in specialty food as it plays a role in everything. It's uh, a hard one to quantify in your starting up and you don't have a ton of money, but it really does play in a, in an amazing role for people. When you see them side by side on a shelf and you need to make a decision, it has a lot to do with uh, <laughs> what label you know makes you want to buy it and tells the story and so on and so forth. But yeah, I well, love it. <laughs> it. No, it's it's great marketing. It has like an old timey, just to explain to the listeners, it has a sort of old timey effect. Um, it has the USDA labeling on it even. And um, I guess there's just like subtle things in the label that are very nice. But also I want to mention you chose uh, paper for your, mm-hmm. is it a paper? I guess you could say it's not plastic or anything like that because. Yeah, just for salami. Yeah, for sure. For the salami, I use paper like cheese because the live active molds, if I cryovacked them or took them into an anaerobic environment, all those beautiful molds would have died killing my product on the spot. Yeah. So in my salami, it's all paper, all recyclable. It's very, very important. And on the other products, like I make a summer sausage that's out there. And we, you know, I hand dip those in wax. Um, you know, just like you did for the cheese world back in the day when you would preserve and keep oxygen off of the outside of it with wax. And I did that, A, for the feeling because I wanted to show that summer sausage, what could and would is a quality product if it has real ingredients, real smoke, so on and so forth, that amazing feel. And just to show and prove to ourselves that we can remove plastics from our product line and ship meat across America that is shelf-stable without using plastics. Yeah, that is very cool. I, I realized when I was tasting it before this episode, it is a very thick wax. And I, I that's amazing. You're hand dipping it. That's yeah, very, she, very cool. Yeah. <laughs> Kudos it's a fun to process. you. Yeah, thank you. It, I, uh, we love it. it yeah, I, I feel like summer sausage is so delicious. And everybody feels like you should buy it at a mall off of a Pepperidge farm. And it should only be like a buck. 
you know? No. And so I had to like change the, the, the perception of it, you know, by dipping it in wax, by, you know, making it feel a little bit more precious. And there's one way to do that. So yeah, it's, I love that product. I'm happy you it's, have some there. That makes me happy. Yeah. <laughs> again, uh, Mallory, your marketing director, AKA, well, we won't call her an assistant because she's not your assistant, but she, um, she, she did a great job. And I have to say the summer sausage is amazing. It's very oh, light. It has that hint of garlic. Um, yeah. Is it, it, it's beef or beef and pork or it's, uh, it's all pork. Yeah. I'm all, pork. all, pork, all yes. pork all day over okay. here. Yeah. <laughs> this is, well, the yeah. only reason why I bring it up is I grew up on Hebrew national, uh, yeah. beef salami, the old school thing. I'm a sure. very Brooklyn born raised person. Mm. And so that's what I was exposed to. And, and those um, are so good too. I, also <laughs> excellent. But then I, I've been over time, the Midwesterners in my life and the cheese, People in my life have exposed me to the the Midwest version, the summer sausage, and now to see your version of it, it's a very cool twist. I really like it. Um, oh, thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. So, um, actually, segueing to another salami that you're making, um, I got the salami de Alba as well. Oh, very that, cool! Wow. Is that awesome. a seasonal bit, or is that always around? Yeah. That's no, sea that's salt cool. with truffle yeah. together in a salami, which is super cool. Yeah, that's awesome. You have some. That thing is, it's, it's hard to find in these parts right now. Those, there's a horrible truffle growing season out here. Uh, ah, okay. And Oregon has a, a truffle culture that has kind of been shunned because we're not one of the big players in it. And we did no service to ourselves out here because a lot of the truffle harvesting was done through raking. And if you rake, you know, using a rake to harvest your truffles, you don't get any of the amazing flavors. And so the society probably, I want to say 15 years ago, started training pigs and dogs out here to harvest our truffles. And it turns into these amazing, ripe, beautiful floral truffles that we get. So they're all dog harvested Oregon truffles, but we had a horrible freeze lake in the year killed a lot of the truffles so we have very very limited truffle supply and so yeah only going to make as many truffles as we could get that are dog harvested every year it fluctuates um, but yeah this year was horrible so we only made two batches and it's a really cool process when the when we harvest the saucisson de arl which is just my sea salt salami with mold on the outside we put them together in a container and we wrap the salamis or the the truffles we put them in there just loosely floating around with the salamis and then we wrap it airtight and keep it in a refrigeration and then it just picks up the flavor you know it permeates the salami and all the fats pick up all the truffly flavors so it's just nuanced and there's no in it it's just all done through you know <laughs> flavoring wow. on the outside which i think is just really cool if you get a truffle at the right time and it's off gassing like enough that a dog can notice it under the ground it does amazing things to your products just by being next to it Oh, that's pretty cool. Uh, I haven't tried it yet. I'm like, like keeping it as like a sacred thing right now. So I'm excited to try it even more now. Um, I I can't wait. Um, And, and, oh my God, I'm just going through the list of samples. Sorry, everyone. But I really, I'm actually very, very excited about this one. Um, Uh The pet provisions, meat treats for pups. You got yourself uh, how some amazing did this gifts. Come about? <laughs> well, this is so. This is another loaded question that I could do an entire podcast on. Um, <clears throat> so we have, uh, like, I think all meat makers need to do in America, and uh, and a lot of the dairy people too. You have a huge responsibility um, when you're dealing with the lives of animals to understand their impact on the environment. And us, obviously, um, with 
you know, taking the lives of animals and trying to improve their impact on the earth. We always ask our farmer partners to have, you know, better practices. And at some point it dawned on me, I'm asking them to be, you know, pasture raised, regenerative focus, have good positive impact on their land. But what am I doing to show support that I don't want to pay? You know, as much as I want to say, I wish everybody would spend $42 a pound on my salami. It's just not going to happen. As you know, at a cheese case, there is just a limit to what you can offer. And at some point as a producer, I think it's your responsibility to look at your impact too and see how you could add value to these products. So about three years ago, I was like, you know, I'm having all of these amazing pasture raised pigs come into my plant and building my network. What can I do with all of this byproduct so I can add value to the product so I don't have to go back to my farmer's partner and say, hey, lower your prices somehow. I can't sell this stuff. So my long story short, my pet tree is every one of the products I can't use in my charcuterie coming from my pigs, the skin, the bones, the kidneys, the, you know, the uterus, all of those amazing animals or amazing parts from these amazing animals that I've grind and smoked in my process so I could move to zero waste and buy whole hogs from my farmer's partners. <laughs> that was a I long think it's perfect. answer. No, no, but it's like perfect timing for this product since everyone got a dog in this time. I feel True. like it's, it's really apt timing. Um, are these, is this a product that's sold at a cheese counter or is this sold at a pet store? Um, how do above. people go about buying this? All the above. We have a lot of uh, cheese counters that have, you know, that we have product recognition on that is trying to tell the story that, hey, Olympia Provisions is zero waste, fully utilizing pasture raised pigs. And the way they are affording this is by making pet treats. And those customers are like, wow, that's amazing. Also, the pet treat industry isn't the most transparent, <laughs> best mm. practiced in industry in the world. And this product is made in my USDA plant with the same pork that we would consume. So it has, you know, very high standards, USDA approved, all the audits for food safety, so on and so forth. And so it's sold at both specialty and in pet stores. It's, uh, it's very cool. I like that you um, put on the packaging, not for humans to eat, because I did look at it like, could oh, yeah. I eat this? Because <laughs> yeah. like, it smells good. Um, yeah. I did test it out on my pup. It, it it did very well. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So the best R, the best R and D researchers we've ever had ever was that pet treats. I tell you what, they loved it. <laughs> oh, I'm sure, I'm, most... and it would make excellent social media content. So uh, if you do your yeah. next one, I, I'd love to see it. <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. Uh, uh, so I guess what's next for you guys? Is there more? I mean, I you have so many products. Yeah. Uh, what's what's next for Olympia Provisions? Yeah, you know, I think we are really, really doing a ton of work here with our our farmers network. You know, these group of farmers that are you know committed to the value of their land and the impact on their land, and making sure uh, that we grow that responsibly. You know, it's it's so easy to say in the meat industry that I want pasture raised pigs and regenerative agriculture to have a positive impact, but there's a ton of work to make that actually sustainable and a reality in the world. You know, the vast majority of pork production comes from big houses in the Midwest that, uh, you know, <laughs> may or may not have the same views as me or have the same impact on the environment as me. And so building this network out here in the Northwest of responsibly minded farmers and producers that actually can stand the test of time is what I will be focusing on probably to the day I die. 
That's great. I mean, absolutely. I that's oh, awesome. You. I appreciate um, that. Well, thank uh, you for the support too. This is it's like you know, buy buy the pet treat, buy the salami, please, because I need it to work. <laughs> exactly. Well, and so that was my follow up question: is where can people buy your products? Uh, is it sold online? Should they buy it direct from you? Um, yeah, all of the above. Of you know, support your local cheesemongers. If you're a specialty buyer, reach out to us directly. We have representation across America. Um, uh, sales at Olympia Provision. Our web store, if you're just a consumer, we do salami memberships. We ship out daily. All the above. Get a hold of us. We will get our product to you. <laughs> um, and, and for best sellers, do you want to recommend any highlights for people? Uh, I think our best overall seller is Saucy Sans Sec traditional French salami, garlic, and black pepper, but, you know, all of my fresh sausages. So we are a charcuterie shop that does not co-pack, which is if it has my brand on it, I make it in my plant, which is very, very rare in the meat industry. Some people may make one product, but then outsource the rest of it. So it's kind of hard to say which one of my product lines. In the pandemic now, since this last year, fresh sausages have seen a huge boom. So like bratwursts, Frankfurters, kielbasas, those products are selling like crazy because people are easy. And then in salami world, uh, saucy son sec and Lucanica, my father's recipe from Greece are all, they're, they're, they're my most often. But bratwurst is probably still, and Frankfurters are probably my number one volume mover. <laughs> oh, that's cool. And I think I saw like a, like a hidden salami, raclettewurst, did that, is that one that exists or yeah. did I make that up? No, that's true. That's a, yeah, the yeah, raclettewurst is a, <laughs> is a salami that is made very rarely in Switzerland. It, it, it is, uh, you stud potatoes inside of your pork sausage and then you dice up raclette and then you smoke it over applewood. And so when you cut into the sausage, you have raclette and potatoes, milty goodness inside of your hot dog or inside of your sausage. So it's a wow. really good sausage. And I, uh, yeah, we have those. That's actually like a wholesale item now, so you can carry those in your store whenever you like. That's cool. That's, I mean, that was just a fun one I tried over the winter. I was like, hmm. They're so this, delicious. And it has caraway. Is... Oh, God, I love those things. <laughs> I mean, that's another thing. You get to have fun with spices all the time. Um, so true. Uh, so um, true. Man, Eli, this is great. Thank you for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I hope it, I hope it was of help. If you have any other questions, please just reach out to me. Definitely, definitely. You'll be our like charcuterie correspondent. I like it. Um, I'm here for it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I just want to tell everyone, uh, please follow Olympia Provisions on Twitter at oppdx or Instagram, simple at Olympia Provisions. Um, I just want to say a few quick things before we end the show. Um, just remember to look at the Cheese Professor website if you're interested in entering this year's virtual cheese competition. Um, it's available for domestic or international cheese producers. So uh, please submit at thecheeseprofessor.com. Um, and also, if you want to reach out to us at Cutting the Curd, just find us on Instagram, DM us. Uh, questions, research ideas, we're always looking for new ideas. Um, I want to thank everyone for listening today, and we'll see you next week on Cutting the Her Curd Excuse me, here on Heritage Radio. Have a good one. Eat more cheese. Cutting the Curd is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. 
Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.